came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come to America. Good morning, America. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. We have one great show for you today. And we have famous attorney Mark Kashowitz to talk about how they put 30,000 people out of work in that trucking company, the yellow trucking company. We have David Malpasp, former president of the World Bank. What is going on internationally? Mario Economo, Europe. Any update and how is that going to affect the United States of America? Dr. Peter Michalos, how are we going to live longer? KT McFarlane on some things going on in our country that smell. And let's start the show with former Secretary of State Michael Pompeo and go around the world and talk about what's happening. With us today is uh, Secretary uh, Mike Pompeo. He was the head of the CIA. He was Secretary of State. No person is better to take us around the world to tell us what the heck is going on in our world, not only our country. Secretary uh, Pompeo, where would you like to start? Uh, I mean, in the last few days, it looks like our government, uh, Washington, has done a deal with Iran, and there's a lot of Americans scratching their head. What say you? Yes, it's, a, it's perfectly appropriate that they're scratching their head because it is unexplainable. Think about this, John. So the deal appears to be that the Iranians will get $6 billion, and we will get five Americans returned home. And everybody wants every American returned home. I worked hard to bring back 50-plus Americans. But you can't pay ransom. Because when you pay a billion dollars per American that's held hostage, I can assure you the Iranians are in this for the business model. This will make them flush. This will build their economy. And, and so you now have a situation where we have told the Iranians, for every American you take, the Biden administration will provide you with $1 billion. And I know some are out there saying, but it's only for food and medicine. John, if someone paid your health care costs and paid for all your food, you'd have money left over to spend on whatever you wanted, right? And now the Iranians have money that's left over. Now spend it on their nuclear program and conduct care and attacking Americans. Uh, this is, this $6 is a billion, dollars, Mr. Secretary. How many plane loads of $100 bills is that? <laughs> Too many. You remember the, the last time the, the Obama administration got Iranians back, they flew pallets of cash over and it took a huge airplane. This time it appears they're just going to wire the money. It's really dangerous. It's dangerous for the Gulf nations. It's dangerous for Israel. And it will only lead to more hostage taking. By the way, not just by Iran. If you're Chairman Kim or you're Vladimir Putin and you realize a billion dollars is a lot of money to these countries, that you can get a billion dollars from the Biden administration if you'll just hold an American hostage, you're setting a really bad and dangerous precedent. Where else in the world would you like to go? You know, one of the things that's been talked about too little is an incident from this past week where together the Russians and the Chinese sailed just off of our economic zone in Alaska and off the coast of Alaska. And I, I mention that because this is a continuation of the Chinese probing. Think about the spy balloon. Think about the fact they're 
uh, building up police stations inside of our country. Uh, now this, now probing our defenses along our western shores of Alaska. The administration, the Biden administration, has done nothing. Uh, to best I can tell, they issued a short statement saying we told the Chinese not to come any closer, but the Chinese Communist Party has paid no cost. And instead, we send to China, we send Secretary Kerry to go beg them to reduce the number of coal-fired power plants that they build, and they ignore us. John, it's this kind of weakness, it's this kind of appeasement that creates risk. Ronald Reagan knew this. Strength matters. It's how you get deterrence. And when you allow the Chinese Communist Party to, whether it's a spy balloon or a flotilla, when you allow them to threaten America in this way, and you don't impose a cost on them, I, I can assure you they feel free to move about the cabin, and it creates risk for every American. Now, uh, I had a uh, a NASA person at one of our breakfasts that we have out in the Hamptons on, on weekends last week, and, and he was talking about uh, climate change. And I said, I said to him, look, we've got 300 million Americans that, that work hard towards the climate. You've got 3 billion between India and China that do zero and are increasing their coal factories. Don't you think you should be talking to them before you talk to Americans? <laughs> and what did he say, John? He, he uh, sat down. <laughs> yes. No, you, you, you've got it exactly right. Look, I, I'm convinced that the climate is changing. The climate's changed for all of recorded history. Our ability to impact that is complicated, but we know this much. Um, we've already imposed enormous costs on the American people to reduce our carbon output, and our creative engineers and our talented technical people have done that. All the while, all of the reductions of carbon from the United States have been grossly overridden by the amount of carbon coming from China. We, we simply can't penalize the American economy, penalize the American worker, penalize American people while allowing China to continue down this path. Even if you believe, as you suggested, this guy does, this NASA fellow did, even if you believe that carbon emissions have to be reduced, you have to do it on a global scale, and you cannot do it at the cost to the American people, because in the end, um, that won't solve the problem you're aiming at. Africa, the Wagner Group, nobody's publicizing it. The Wagner Group, which is theoretically a subsidiary of Russia, has been taking over countries and raising the Russian flag. been surprised by this, too, John. I've been surprised that there's been so little in the media and in the news and reported, or frankly, from the Biden administration talking about the fact that you now have Russian forces. That's what the Wagner Group is. They are paid for by Russian taxpayers. Um, the Wagner Group operating inside of multiple countries, overthrowing governments inside of Africa. And the West and the United States have done nothing. We, we should be making sure at the very least we're identifying this risk. We should demand that the countries that are around it begin to stand up and, and defend themselves. And much like in Europe, we should make sure that this problem, which is just south of the European continent, that European countries are working to prevent this as well. A Russian takeover of all of the resources that sit inside of Africa will combine with the Chinese control that's already there, and they can make life much more complicated, much more difficult for America and American business in the decades ahead. Mr. Secretary, uh, you were the head of the CIA for a while, and, uh, and you worked very closely with the FBI. I mean, I've been telling friends uh, we have 15,000 uh, FBI special agents. I think... We probably need 45,000. I mean, this, we're being attacked in so many directions where the CIA can help internationally, but they can't help in our own country. Oh, 
Uh, John, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, I agree. You know, some on the political right have said, you know, we need to disband the FBI. And I get where that comes from. I, I get the fact that it was politicized, that Comey and McCabe were bad actors and used the FBI in bad ways. But you're right. I know a lot of these special agents. So do you. So does most of the folks who listen to your show. You know, young women who are out uh, taking drugs off the streets in Houston, Texas, or young guys doing preventing financial crimes in Minnesota. Uh, we need more capacity to install law and order in the United States. It's something that uh, from time immemorial, conservatives have believed we need more capacity to protect people who are doing the right thing and to punish those who are behaving criminally. I, I, we need more focus on the intelligence that the Chinese are collecting from inside of our country. And that is a fundamental mission of the FBI. I, I agree 110 percent. And we're being attacked by uh, fentanyl on our borders where our universities, uh, the, the Chinese students are, are, uh, have to be loyal to more to China because their parents' lives depend on that. I mean, there's so many directions. I, I just don't understand how do we defend our country. You know, add to that, John, you, you, you hit just about all of them. I would add to that the fact that we now have so porous a border along our southern boundary, the risk that's being created from drugs, from human trafficking, from crime, from potentially from terrorism, all coming across what is now essentially a wide-open southern border. And this is going to make the job of our law enforcement officials, not just the FBI, but uh, NYPD, the LAPD, sheriff's offices all across America, their job is going to get even more difficult. The federal government has to get this right. Uh, and if we don't get this right, if we don't get the piece at our southern border right, we're going to need a lot more help enforcing our laws all across the country. we got a minute left. What else would you like to tell the American people? Look, we're, we're about to head into a political season. We'll come to Labor Day here and uh, campaigns, not just the presidential campaign. They'll, they'll start in earnest. American people deserve real debate. Um, ask hard questions. Don't ask silly questions. Don't ask gotcha questions. Force these folks who've said, I want to serve America to answer just exactly the same hard questions you've been asking me this morning. Uh, we deserve real answers, substantive answers that aren't about yesterday or history, but are actually talking about how we're going to take this 250 years of America and ensure that we get another 250 years of American greatness. I'm convinced we can, but I'm counting on your listeners and American citizens all across the country to hold these candidates accountable and then vote for the ones that can promise and will execute to make sure that we do get more good years here in the United States. Secretary Pompeo, head of the CIA, Secretary uh, of State, thank you for everything you've done for America and continue to speak out for America. Keep your eyes open and... We have to protect I'll America because we're in trouble. Bless you, John. Thank, Thank you, John. Have God a bless you. Day. This is the Catch Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. With us today is Mark Kasowitz. He runs a uh, big New York uh, trial uh, uh, firm, Kasowitz, Benson, and Torres. He's known to be as one of the best in the country. Good morning, uh, Mark uh, Kasowitz. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine, John. Uh, thanks for that introduction, and thanks for having me. And uh, I saw you on uh, Fox News uh, a few uh, days ago, uh, and you represent the uh, Yellow Trucking Company. And uh, everybody was shocked how this company uh, uh, went out of business, uh, went bankrupt, and uh, 30,000 people, the Teamsters, uh, are been laid off. And I was shocked that the uh, the Teamsters and management couldn't sit down and, 
and work out so 30,000 of their members don't go out of business or go lose their jobs. Well, it's a a terrible story, um, John, uh, but this is one of those situations, very unique, I think, but this is one of those situations where the blame, unfortunately, all falls on one side, and it falls on the side uh, of the Teamsters Union. And the reason that it falls on the side of the Teamsters Union is that Yellow had been engaged in a very well-known, well-publicized, well-conceived plan to modernize its business. And it needed to modernize its business because it was it consists of four operating companies that it had merged with over the years. And those operating companies had some inefficiencies between and amongst them. In some instances, they were competing for the same loads and the same customers. So in 2019... Yellow embarked on a, an initiative called One Yellow to modernize its business to bring everything under one tent. And the first phase of that business was to, to do that modernization was out west in California. And the union at that time in 2020-2021 agreed to that, agreed to some very, very minor changes uh, in seniority for some of its members and in some of the additional jobs that some of its members, a very small percentage of them, would have to do on the West Coast. And Yellow succeeded in the first phase of its modernization effort, and it was working extremely well. Then what happened is union leadership changed, and the new leadership just absolutely refused to negotiate with Yellow for the rest of the country for the cha- to implement these changes in the rest of the country. And One Yellow had been a concept that had been sold to all of the markets, to the lenders, to the government, to everyone else. But the union refused for the last nine months to even sit down and discuss any of these changes, as a result of which Yellow wasn't able to implement the changes and ultimately, it went out of business. But this is, this is solely in the lap of, of, of Teamsters. You mentioned 30,000 uh, employees. There were 30,000 employees of this company who were out of work. 22,000 of them are Teamsters. And all of this was brought to the attention of the union nine months ago. And consistently, over the last nine months, Yellow's leadership had been making repeated and repeated uh, requests of the union to sit down and negotiate. I mean, frankly, uh, they were practically begging the union to sit down and negotiate so that one yellow could be finished, and the union just flat out refused to do it. Uh, And, Mark, let me ask you a question. Uh, Didn't the members themselves uh, try to uh, talk to the union, uh, the union leadership, and say, we don't want to lose our jobs? I mean, see, nobody, uh, all across the country, nobody really, they're scratching their head, don't understand it. What did the members say? It's very difficult to understand. The management went out to try to deal directly, you know, with, with the members to try to tell them what was happening and what was coming and why their their leadership was not serving them well. And for whatever reason, whether whether the union leadership, well, we know for a fact, we have evidence of it, that you, the union leadership was just trying to quell any dissent whatsoever. At the last minute, John, within a week before the company uh, had to file, 
The union leaders came to the company, called them repeatedly over the course of a weekend, wanting to make a deal, saying, hey, we've got to make a deal, we've got to make a deal. And probably what happened then was that the membership had uh, was up in arms because they realized what was about to happen. But by that time, it was too late. The business was evaporating because the union had threatened to uh, to strike. Wow, that is a real wow. I mean, this goes down in annals of uh, of Arthur Anderson being shut down and in companies like that. I mean, it's just uh, mind boggling. It it is mind boggling, John. And we brought on behalf of Yellow before the bankruptcy filing about a month before the bankruptcy filing, we filed a complaint against the union for its breaches of its bargaining agreement in refusing to sit down and negotiate with the company. And in that in that complaint, uh, which is it's a very lengthy 60 page, very specific, very, very full of facts. And in that complaint, uh, we pointed out that one hundred and forty million dollars had been lost by the company because of the union's refusal to negotiate these these modernization changes. And now, now that the company's actually gone out of business, uh, we're going to be seeking, and the complaint sets this forth, we're going to be seeking $1.5 billion in lost enterprise value uh, of, the, um, of the company. Oh, that's quite a bit. One of your most famous uh, clients, uh, Mark, was uh, Donald Trump. He's had his hands full lately. It seems like, uh, I mean, nobody can understand it, that current administration is going after their possible competition of, of, in the presidential field and uh, trying to tie up his hands so he can't run. What do, you, what do you say of what's going on in Washington, what's going on in the Department of Justice, what's going on with uh, ethics in general? Yes, uh, President Trump does have his hands full with all of these cases that have been brought against him. And I just hope that he faces these cases head on and that his lawyers do a, uh, a great job for him. But putting that aside, because the cases brought against him are now part of the legal process and we'll have to let you know that process uh, work in each of those cases. But one of the things that we do see in Washington these days which is very troubling, is a sort of an unbalanced playing field when it comes to this administration and how it deals with situations involving Republicans and then how it deals with situations involving Democrats. And, and, and I have to tell you, and we're not involved in any of the cases against President Trump, nor are we involved in the so-called investigation of Hunter Biden. But when you look at the evidence that seems to be coming out with respect to the president's son, and you look at trails of money that have gone to members of the family, and when you look at what who Hunter Biden is and what services he was supposed to have performed, you would think that there would be an extraordinarily robust investigation of all of those things by uh, the Justice Department. This is John Katzman-Tabies. If you want to hear the full interview 
go to WABCRadio.com. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. If you ever miss a segment or want to hear it again, go to WABCRadio.com, go to podcasts, go to minicasts, and play back your favorite segment. With us today is David Malpass, and he was four years as the World Bank president, uh, and he also served in uh, the Undersecretary of Treasury of International Affairs for the United States, so six years of public service. Uh, how are you, uh, David? Hi, John. Good to talk with you. I'm good. I'm, I'm just worried about global growth. You know, things aren't going well in quite a few parts of the world. Well, I was on, I issued a press release uh, the other day uh, after the CPI came, and uh, I said that uh, there's an economic struggle going on between the United States that wants uh, 55 or $65 oil versus Russia and the OPEC nations that want $85 oil, and it's an economic war. Uh, and Russia needs the money to for their war in the Ukraine, and Russia needs their money for their newly started war through the Wagner Group in Africa. Who's going to win that economic war of oil? I'm worried that they're winning. You know, Russia's working with Saudi Arabia, that with some of the other producers, and so they limit their production. That drives up the price, and that has consequences all over the world. It hurts poorer people because they need energy a lot. They need it to produce electricity, uh, to produce clean water, and to get their economies growing. From Russia's standpoint, it's okay to have the world destabilized by high oil prices. Also, it's, it's connecting Russia to China more and more every month, and that's a negative for the long term. It's not useful to have those two powers Russia is the biggest country in the world. China is used to be the biggest population. I think India now has taken over. But China's got a powerful economy, and the two of them together are uh, not a good alliance against the U.S. It comes at a time. I mean, think what, think of the unfortunate timing of all this. The strategic petroleum reserve that the U.S. used to have has been cut uh, massively. It's down below 350 million barrels, and so that's not enough to— uh, really called strategic. And it's coming at a time when uh, the economy uh, isn't as strong as it ought to be. We're at full employment, and yet the numbers come in still on the weak side. And all of this, I think, connects to not being willing to produce enough energy for what the U.S. needs and the world needs. Well, I made a uh, press uh, release the other day where uh, America, all they have to do to win that strategic war uh, of uh, economic war with gasoline is open up the open up the spigots in Alaska, United States, and uh, Canada. We could probably take it up to at least 10, 15, 20 percent, and uh, the price of oil will come down, and no longer will uh, Russia and and, and uh, OPEC nations control control of supply. Clearly, there's been more production than anyone thought. Remember back a few years ago, they were talking about Hubbard's Peak and there being a a shortage of oil, but it it turned out not to be true. In fact, a big part of the production in the U.S. is from the Permian Basin. Uh, But I think there also needs to be an address for those worried about greenhouse gas emissions from a climate standpoint. 
really need to recognize that what the world is doing right now, because of high oil prices, they're, they're turning to coal. And so you'd see this giant uh, resurgence of coal. And so in Europe, their greenhouse gas emissions are going, have gone up because of the shortage of natural gas and because of the high price of oil. Uh, and so this is harming from whichever way you look at it. I think there should be more burden also on the Fed to realize that if they're trying to bring inflation down, they have to be more pointed at the uh, supply side of the economy. Get, get U.S. output up and world output up, and you'd be able to bring interest rates down, not keep pushing them up. And I also said that interest rates, the Powell should consider lowering interest rates because our economy, uh, you know, with, uh, with the inflation at 3%, I think that's sufficient to lower interest rates because uh, our country is suffering and the banks are scared to lend money. Uh, John, I'll push back on that a little bit. I, I think it's really important from a communication standpoint that the Fed say and really mean that they're going to beat inflation. 3% inflation, I think, is too much. Uh, but uh, I think the way that they can do that is to recognize that they, the Fed, play a critical part in the supply side of the economy in getting production up. They could talk about, in the long run, the dollar is going to be a strong, stable currency. And that, and that would comfort markets, and people would want to make more investments in things that would give them a long-term payoff. So communicating that we're going to have a policy, uh, both on the fiscal side, I think the Fed should be speaking out a little more, quite a bit more, on the idea that the government got to stop just blowing the budget deficit every year. Year after year, they go way over where they should be in terms of government spending. The Fed, the Fed has a role in that because they're responsible for stability of prices and stability of the dollar. And it's very hard to do when the government is spending this much money. So the Fed could talk about it could talk about fiscal, and they could certainly talk about the dollar being stable for the long run. And that would get people investing more, prices would come down, and the Fed would be able to cut. That should be their goal. The goal of the Fed should be getting to rate cuts, get, get, helping the economy get to rate cuts as soon as they, as they can. Agreed 100%. Uh, in, in addition, uh, one of those uh, breakfasts that we have on Saturday morning, we had a NASA person on a couple of weeks ago, and they blamed global warming on the United States. And I said to them, you got 300 million Americans or 330 million, whatever. You got 3 billion Chinese and Indians, and they pay no respects at all to global warming. Don't you think we should have them uh, before we pay respects to global warming before we punish the American people. Okay, one problem with that argument is historically the U.S. has produced a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. So I think in order to really talk about the issue, you uh, uh, have to have both the historical analysis, where did the emissions come from, and then where are they going to be coming from over the next 30 years? So a projection, and then actually have policies that, that address the concern. And one of the problems is at each point, what is happening in, in the real world is people are looking to spend as much money as possible on the, pro on the problem rather than actually fixing the problem through reduced greenhouse gas emissions. And so we need the data to show that China and India not only 
produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions now, but end up planning to do a lot more of that into the future. And that's not going to be solved by electric vehicles. That has to be solved by conversion of their economies. We haven't talked about, John, but uh, nuclear power, I think, is really important and increased uh, production of of, uh, natural gas. Both of those have less carbon intensity, lots less carbon intensity than the current uh, energy mix in the world. Bottom line, though, is that people in the world need lots more energy, especially the poor. And so if, you're, if your answer is, no, no, we're not going to do that, then you're really dooming people to hunger, uh, to lack of education, to malnutrition for the children. And that's the, that's the real world. You mentioned Africa at the beginning. They're in a dire straits. I was in Niger in, in March. I spent a lot of time with the president. And one of the big concerns that he has is China's the one helping them produce energy, and they desperately need energy. It's not a, it's not a balanced uh, global economy with the U.S. being weak in Africa. And uh, you talk about nuclear energy. I had Governor Youngkin on the other day, and we talked about the SMRs, small modular reactors, that are going to come, start coming to the United States by 2030 to produce nuclear energy to substitute for fossil fuels in the future. Uh, wouldn't it be good if the U.S government were saying that is going to be an important part of the solution to the climate challenges. We're out of time, but I look forward to many more discussions, especially how to help the world on energy in the future. And God bless you. And thank you for everything you've done for America. Continue to speak out for America. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. With us today is Mario Economo. Uh, He's a former uh, banker. He has worked in New York, London, Zurich for large money center banks. And he usually gives us a European report to find out what the heck is going on over there because eventually that's going to affect the United States of America. Mario Economo, welcome to Sunday morning. What the heck is going on in Europe? Yes, good morning, everybody, uh, and a wonderful Sunday wish to everyone. Um, Let's start off with a discussion on Niger. Last week you had a lady on your program who gave some very good insight with respect to what happened in Niger and the coup there and the importance of Niger specifically with respect to uranium and the fact that France mined uranium from Niger in order to power its nuclear power plants. The situation, of course, there continues to be what it was. The military uh, dictatorship continues to be in place. France's president has said that if there's any attack against France or any of its interests there, that Paris will respond forcefully. The reality is I'm not too sure what Paris can do. We know that the uh, uh, in the U.S., the Undersecretary of State went and visited uh, last week in Niger, and she met with the head of the defense there of the, uh, of the military junta. He's a fellow who's actually been trained by U.S. Special Forces, there was no meeting of minds, and she left saying that they are pretty determined to proceed according to their own uh, uh, course of action. We know, though, that uh, the Wagner Group and Russia are in this, they're involved in this, and they're behind this, and and that's one of the reasons why President Macron, I suspect, is no longer interested in speaking and discussing things with Russia, but rather continuing to arm and help the Ukraine, because he believes Russia is behind this, and Russia is going to make life for France very difficult in this exchange. 
We also know that in Russia, President Putin has announced that he's going to actually be allocating a substantial amount of money to develop a large system of drones. And although he didn't get in, into any details, it is suspected that what he wants to do is create a drone system where there's going to be swarms of drones, which will actually in real time communicate with each other using AI. That's something that's being worked on by the U.S. and by the Israelis as well. And the idea is to be able to overcome any defenses another country may put up with respect to a swarm of drones. It's going to cost roughly $6 billion, but if we look at what Russia earned in July uh, off of its crude exports and other products of 15, over $15 billion U.S. dollars, it should have no problem funding this uh, particular thing. With respect to the Ukraine, Germany has announced that it's going to actually be sending another battery of Patriot missiles, and it's also going to send something called a Taurus missile, which is a longer-range miss missile, specifically of 500 kilometers. Germany did say that they would not send any more tanks, but it's interesting that Germany has decided to go ahead and send these longer-range missiles. I suspect the Germans realized that the offensive that the Ukrainians had launched earlier this summer has failed. The Ukrainians have failed to breach the outer more, outermost line of defense that the Russians have set up, and we, like we said last week, once they breach that, if they even breach it, they still have two other lines they got to get through. So it's not looking good for the Ukrainians. And we know this also because the Ukrainians are starting to use other tactics. They're starting to attack inside of Russia. They're starting to do things that uh, President Biden and the U.S. had specifically uh, asked them not to do, which was to actually take the fight into Russia. They're actually doing this, and it's going to be interesting to see how Washington is going to respond to this. The Russians, for their part, continue to hold steady, and they continue to say that this war will continue until their uh, requirements are met. We know that last week there was a meeting held by the uh, Saudis in Saudi Arabia where roughly 40 countries attended to discuss a ceasefire in terms to ending this war. The Ukrainians were there. However, the Russians were not there, so I'm not sure how you can have a meeting, although the Saudis did this and they did it in good faith because they do want to end the war. The reality is unless Russia is sitting at the table, it's a pointless discussion. Mario, are they getting uh, the people of Russia, not that they count, or the people uh, in Ukraine getting tired of this war? I mean, uh, it seems like no ending. It seems like no purpose other than Russia took st some strategic spots in the Ukraine and just waiting things out. Uh, yes, Russia controls roughly 20 to 25 percent of the eastern part of Ukraine. They're not going to give that up. The Russian people, for the most part, you're right, it's difficult to get any news out of Russia, but from people who live there and from things we hear over the internet and the like, the people continue to be behind President Putin. There's not the mass defections that everybody thought there was going to be. There is talk that in the Ukraine a lot of people are no longer interested in fighting. There is a talk that a lot of people are actually surrendering. Do I know this for a fact? No, I don't. And I don't think anybody does. But we know that the U.S. has said that they estimate Ukrainian casualties to be roughly 300,000. So that's a lot of men in a year and a half. Think about that number, 300,000 men in 1.5 years. Think about how long it took for the U.S. to lose roughly 55,000 men in Vietnam. And we're talking one and a half years. So this war has to end. There's no doubt about it. Continuing it, it makes no sense. Countries like Germany, we see the German chancellor in, uh, who's from the Socialist Party uh, polling at roughly 17 percent, whereas the AFD, which is the far right party, polling at 22 percent. And the AFD party, 
which is polling at 22%, has four requirements. The first is that Germany leaves the European Union. The second is that the European Union ceases to exist. The third is no more immigration into Germany. And the fourth is immediate reestablishment of commercial and diplomatic ties with Russia. So you can see that the people in Germany are starting to get tired of this, and they're starting to ask questions. How about um, the people I in France? Could... Are, are they getting tired with their country being invaded uh, uh, with non-French? Yeah, so that's how we'll close today. We'll discuss this whole immigration thing and the importance of what's happening. Uh, President Putin and Russia and Turkey and Turkey, for that matter, have realized that one thing they can do is they can control the spigots of immigration into Europe. And by putting pressure and creating havoc in the Sahel in Africa, uh, President Putin knows a lot of people will start to flee and they're going to make their way into Libya and across into uh, Europe. We see the same thing happening in Turkey. Flows into Greece of migrants continue unabated. The numbers are pretty astounding, even though the government is saying that they're not as bad as they appear to be. Social media would suggest otherwise. Locals who live up on the borders are taking uh, videos and pictures of migrants who are climbing uh, over the walls, which have been built with ladders, using bolt cutters to cut razor wire fence, crossing the river, which is at a low right now because it's summer and there is there's thing, no water, essentially. Last thing before we're, we're up in time, uh, there's 10,000 uh, Russian troops on the border of Poland. Are they serious or are they there just to stir the pot? Do you mean in in, in the Belarus uh, on the border with I, I'm sorry I don't understand you mean what the Wagner group troops which are up there well there's a, there's there's Russian troops up there on the border of Poland and Poland says they hope that they don't get invaded well, uh, yeah, so that's something we're going to have to watch because uh, the reality is we don't know what's going on on the border up there. I can assure you the Russians have substantially more than 10,000 men. Again, estimates are that the Russians are preparing three to 500,000 men for a wartime situation. And by the way, this brings us back to one last thing that I do want to say. And Mr. Parker mentioned something very interesting last week, and that was specifically that the Chinese now are building merchant marine vessels, which are dual-purpose vessels. They're also going to be able to be used in a wartime effort. So we see that China, we see that Russia are both preparing for what could be yes. a much larger scale war. That doesn't mean there's going to be a war, but the I fact understand. that they're preparing for one means that they're thinking many steps ahead of what we are in the West. Mario Konomu, thank you so much for your time, and uh, God bless you, and uh, uh, keep your eyes open on that Polish border to keep us informed, and we can put you on during the week if there's anything important happening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Enjoy your day. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Dr. Peter Mihalos. He's our historian, our in-house genius on medical affairs. Uh, Dr. Mihalos, all of a sudden, uh, all the news channels are saying COVID is coming back. Uh, how can uh, uh, the American people, how can we protect ourselves and what are we supposed to do? Well, every year we have the flu and we haven't gotten rid of the flu for uh, as long as mankind is around. Because what happens is initially viruses that are new break out and that's what's called a pandemic. And those viruses initially can be very, very deadly like the 1917-18 flu or 1968-69 Hong Kong flu or what we just saw in COVID in December 2019. But what we also learned from history that viruses will continue to mutate. So we keep hearing about all these different variants. And as these viruses mutate, they learn that they can't keep killing their human hosts. So fortunately for us, that they become less deadly and less debilitating. But 
what happens is that they learn to also become more contagious because they need to jump from host to host to continue to survive. But what's interesting about this particular virus is some of the side effects, and usually you catch a cold and it goes away. But we're seeing that a large percentage of people are developing something called long-haul COVID. And recently, some of the publications have shown that this virus is very interesting on how it likes to attack nerves. For example, the smelling nerve called the olfactory nerve, it goes right up into the nose to try to hide in immune-privileged areas where they hide from the immune system, like the brain and the uh, smelling nervous system. That's why people are losing sense of smell with COVID. It's also now been found that it affects something called the vagus nerve, and the nerve that controls our breathing and sends reflexes and signals to our heart. So now it's starting to explain why some of these people with long-haul COVID are having an elevated speeding up uh, heart rate called tachycardia. And they're also having weird sudden drops in blood pressure that may also be caused by the changes in speed of the heart because our heart muscle is our pump that feeds our brain. And it also may explain why people are having periods of fatigue and being tired and also getting misdiagnosed with other diseases like myalgias and other fatigue syndromes. But what's happening is that we need to do things and find out more about what we can do to prevent getting COVID and also to minimize the effects of COVID. We talked about recently on the CATS Roundtable that a large study of patients looking at their charts who are on a common diabetes drug called metformin made from French lilac, turns out that those people get 40% less COVID. We found out that people whose vitamin D levels are between 50 and 75 were less likely to be affected by severe COVID. We found out that the common uh, drug diabetes, the people who were on it, even the diabetics, were less likely to end up in the ICU. We find out that our body mass index or our weight and size affects us. So we, are, we need to be motivated to try to stay as thin as possible. And as we always talk so about... So we, we are table. getting smarter and our doctors are getting smarter how to treat COVID so we don't die from it. Right. And we also have antivirals, just like with the flu. We have Tamiflu. You take it the first three days. And we also have an option from Merck the malnupiravir and from Pfizer, uh, the Paxlovid. Anything you take, whether it's a vaccine, a pill, there's always going to be some side effects. But at least now we have a treatment, just like with HIV and AIDS 40 years later, there's no vaccine. But there is a cocktail where they give you two or three different antivirals, and basically you attack the virus at multiple replication points, and that will stop and control the AIDS virus. That's why we're not seeing all those deaths that we were seeing years ago with HIV. So we've learned how to control it. But again, we tell our listeners that as the winter comes on, we know that the virus spreads more in dry air. In humid air, it seems to get wet and like falls to the floor, so it doesn't travel as much. So as people are starting to crowd indoors, we tell people to be more cautious. And if you have it, you know, find out if you have it and isolate. Don't go to your job or, you know, to household members, especially to the elderly, which are higher risk of being severely affected and just try to uh, stay away from them. But thank God we have treatments now. Yes, hospitalizations are up, but I think we're much better equipped. And uh, we've learned that our supply chain is national security and hospitals are much better prepared with medications now and treatments. Early on, it was scary when we saw all these body bags and refrigerators in hospitals because there was no real treatment. Anything else you want to uh, want to tell the American people? We have another minute left. 
Yeah, just uh, to reiterate what we talked about, that the new uh, depression pill for postpartum depression, half a million women in the United States are affected, one in seven women. People end up killing themselves and dying, and now there's a pill you take it once a day for 14 days, and uh, people respond dramatically within three days, and that's going to help save a lot of women and uh, probably a lot of their husbands, too, from uh, the stress of uh, severe depression after delivering babies. So exciting news on the medical front, thanks to capitalism in the United States and people investing in research and development, and while the rest of the world waits to uh, follow what we're doing. So uh, it's a great time to be an American uh, scientist, and uh, American scientists came through and got us through many things, and uh, we'll continue to see great advances in healthcare in this great country. Dr. Peter Michalos, thank you for bringing us up to date, and God bless you, and uh, enjoy the rest of the weekend, and uh, let's keep on the American people healthy. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thanks for always getting the truth out on the Cats Roundtable. With us today is KT McFarlane. She was National Security Advisor. KT, where do you want to start? I mean, I can't believe what, what was going on in California with the uh, Biolab and our, our, our country was even lending them money. To tell us, give us an update on that biolab. Okay, well, this is very upsetting because the, the media just has ignored this. It, it now turns out that they found that a, a Chinese, quote, medical research lab in California, owned by the Chinese, was basically supercharging viruses, that they were, they were doing what's called gain-of-function research, taking viruses and supercharging them, making them more lethal, and more contagious. And this was going on in the United States. It's illegal for Americans to do it, but somehow this lab was conducting it. And then I started putting the pieces together because a couple of months ago, there was a story, again, not a lot of attention paid to it, but of Chinese scientists, doctors returning to China and they were carrying with them lab cultures. And people were scratching their head, what's that going, you know, what's that all about? Well, you start putting that together with what happened at, at the Wuhan Virology Lab, which is where the whole COVID virus started, which is where the Chinese were co-located in the same building of the research that was being done at that virology lab was the Chinese bioweapons manufacturing, bioweapons research lab. And then you turn out to find out that probably the United States was funding some of that research. So the whole thing, it's what's China doing creating biological weapons or things that could be used as biological weapons? What's the United States connection to it? And why are more people not being upset by this? That what's China doing in the United States and what are they doing with the thought of making bioweapons? You know, we know about cyber weapons, we know regular military weapons, but is there some new weapon being created uh, right underneath our noses? Well, we're, we're being attacked in so many directions. And you know what I tell people criticizing the FBI, you know what I say to them? I say to them, we probably need, if they have 15,000 special agents, we probably need triple that. I mean, we have to protect our country versus cyber attacks, versus Chinese or Russians creating places like that, that clinic. Well, it's not just that, but the Chinese are, what are they doing buying all this land around American military bases? What are they doing flying spy balloons over the United States? You know, we may, our president, President Biden may say, well, we're having a friendly competition, strategic competition. There are competitors. They're not our enemies. Well, they think they're the enemies. 
and that we may not want a cold war with them, but they're fighting a cold war with us. And they're doing it in a, in a number of different ways. You know, the good old cold war with the Soviet Union was fought over weapon systems and proxy wars around the world. China understands that they can't compete with the United States militarily, at least not now. But what they can do is compete with us economically and technologically and with trade. And that's the direction they're going in. And, and again, we're, we're kind of asleep at the wheel. We're not paying the kind of attention we need to, and we're not taking the steps we need to, whether it's, as you say, get more FBI agents to find out what the heck's going on in the United States. But also, why are we not investing in high technology the way the Chinese are? I, I just I can't understand it, Kate. Say, what other things? Can, uh, what other things bother you about maintaining our way of life, maintaining our country? Well, you know, you've been you've been a very vocal and effective person to talk about the whole energy issue and how the United States is we're tying our hands behind our backs because we have the ability to produce abundant, cheap, secure energy, fossil fuels, fracking. But the the Biden Green New Deal is not allowing it. And I was just watching today where President, or a couple of days ago even, where President Biden was bragging about how great the economy is and his, quote, Inflation Recovery Act is doing such great that you were, and that act was nothing, the Green New Deal is nothing more than a give China money deal because a lot of the components of any of the green projects are all made in China. This is John Katzman-Tedes. If you want to hear the full interview, go to wabcradio.com. Thank you for listening to the Cats Roundtable every Sunday morning. We'll bring you the latest in what's happening in our community, our country, and the world. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a nice Sunday.